2 Kings chapter 23, and uh, we're going to be looking at a king by the name of Josiah. These days, this is the southern kingdom, these are God's people, but these days in the life of God's people, they had so long not been walking faithfully with God that two things had happened. The temple, which it was the centerpiece of where God dwelt with his people and where God's people went and sacrificed and worshiped God, the temple had found itself in disrepair. And more amazingly scary than that, it had been so long since anybody had read the word of God that from the king to the priest, they had forgotten that it existed. Just let that hang in the room a minute. The church was in disrepair, and nobody remembered that there was a Bible. Josiah is a good king, the last good king of the, of the southern kingdom. He doesn't know anything other to do than let's take some money that the people have been donating. Let's, ref, let's refurbish the the temple. Let's clean it out. Let's fix it up. That's, he knew that was the right thing to do. And so in restoring the temple, cleaning out closets and, and cleaning out rooms, they find the book of the law. And they happen to mention it to the king. By the way, we found the book of the law and they then read it to the king. And when Josiah hears the word of God, he immediately tears his robe. It's a sign of repentance, of grief. Because he knows two things. He knows that by reading the law, it has demonstrated clearly. He understands that they have been living in sin. And number two, the right response of sin is God's wrath. And so he goes and he sends to hear from a prophetess what they should do. He hears a word from the Lord. And in chapter 23, we get the testimony of Josiah's response to God's word. 2 Kings chapter 23. I'm going to begin reading in verse 1. We'll go through verse 7, then we'll skip down to verse 21. Verse 1. Then the king sent, and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and of Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and, and all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with him, and the priests and the prophets and all the people, both small and great, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant, which was found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all of his heart and all his soul to carry out the words of the covenant that were written in this book. And all the people entered into the covenant then the king commanded Hilkiah, the high priest, and the, the priest of the second order and the doorkeepers to bring out of the temple of the Lord all the vessels that were made for Baal, that is a pagan idol, for Baal and for, for, and for Asherah and for all the, the host of heaven. And he burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of Kentron and carried their ashes to Bethel. And he did away with the idolatrous um, priest whom the king of Judah, the kings of Judah had appointed to burn incense in the high places, 
uh, in, the, in the cities of Judea, uh, Judah and in the surrounding area of Jerusalem, also those who burned incense to Baal, to the sun and to the moon and to the constellations and to all the hosts of heaven. And he brought out the Asherah from the house of the Lord outside Jerusalem to the brook of Kidron, and he burned it at the brook of Kidron and ground it to dust and threw its dust on the graves of the common people. And he also broke down the houses of the male cult prostitutes who were in the house of the Lord where the women were weaving hangings for the Asherah. Then verse 21. Then the king commanded all the people, saying, Celebrate the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant. Surely such a Passover had not been celebrated from the days of the judges who judged Israel, nor in all the days of the kings of Israel and of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, Passover was observed to the Lord in Jerusalem. When I think about God's people, so in my mind's eye, when I, when I think about Israel, when I think about the Hebrews, when I think about the northern kingdom or the southern kingdom, when I think about the days of the judges, all of those things, all of God's people in all the expanse of the Old Testament, what my mind's eye imagines is God's people who know they're God's people, who we know have moments where they sin, where they turn away. But I always, in my mind's eye, I always put that in the context of backsliding. Now, maybe you don't know what backsliding is. Let me explain it a little bit. Backsliding is when you're a faithful believer, a churchgoer, but all of a sudden you quit going to church. You stop reading your Bible. It's not that you've rejected God. It's not that you are a, um, you're, you're, you, you, you don't believe in the Scripture anymore. It doesn't even mean that you, uh, that you hate the church. But it, it just you, you find yourself, you allow stuff in your life to, to, to fill up your life and, and, and squeeze out the things of righteousness, and you turn your, give your life over to things of worldliness and sin, and that's called backsliding. You have slidden away from walking faithfully with the Lord. And so when you deal with backsliders, you call them back. Come back to the house of the Lord. Come back to a right relationship with the Lord. And in my mind's eye, I always think of Israel, Hebrews, northern kingdom, southern kingdom, all of God's people from, from, uh, from uh, Genesis all the way uh, to, uh, to Malachi as just really God's people who are backslidden. But the thing about backslidden folks is they know from which they have slidden from, Right? If you talk to somebody who's backslidden and you ask them about going to church, you know what they're going to say? You know what? I know, I know, I know I need to get back in church. You talk to somebody who's backslidden about reading the Bible, they're going to say, you know, I, I know. I need to be more time in the Word. I need to pray more. They'll agree with you on that because they understand where they need to be, where God wants them to be, and where they are. But that is not what is happening in chapters 22 and 23 of 2 Kings. Yes, these people are backslidden. But this is much, much worse than that. At this point in the history of, of the kingdom, uh, 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 the kingdoms of God, the, the kingdoms have split. There's the northern kingdom. There's the southern kingdom. By the time of Josiah's kingdom, he was a king of the, of the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom had already been conquered and taken off by Assyria. That kingdom was no more. And Josiah would be the last, and I put this in scare quotes, good king. There weren't very many. His great-grandfather, Hezekiah, was a righteous king. But his father, his grandfather, 
Manasseh was a wicked, wicked ruler. The overwhelming majority of his rule was, was all kinds of things. In fact, most of the, uh, of the sins that we see being dealt with in, chapters 20, in chapter 23 were brought about not only by, but, but in part by Manasseh, who put in pagan altars inside the temple put pagan places of sacrifice right beside the sacrificial altar of God in the temple courtyard. They allowed houses to be built in the temple complex for cult prostitutes and all kinds of wickedness. They built high place places of worship, which would have been places of pagan worship all around Jerusalem and in the high places in the land. Now, his grandfather did most of his, his kingdom in his life wickedness, but in the end of his days, through the end of his life, God humbled him greatly. He turned from his sin, turned to the Lord, and there was a small season of, uh, of, um, of, uh, of turning to the Lord and, and, uh, and turning the kingdom to the Lord. But when he died, his son Amon, which would have been uh, Josiah's dad, The reality is he grew up in wickedness. And even though his father turned to the Lord late in his life, his son chose to go the way of wickedness. And he brought back all the things that his father in his later years tried to get rid of. Then we have Josiah. He becomes king as an eight-year-old. And when he becomes king, the temple still stands. There's still worship happening in the temple. That's going to be key, dear friends. Because at no time in the history did any of these pagan, these wicked kings say, stop worshiping God. They just always said, let's worship something else in addition to the living God. By the time Josiah, at eight years old, becomes king, nobody in the land, from the king to the priest, remember that there is a law of God. I mean, just, just put this in our terms. Imagine this building that's been dedicated to the preaching of God's truth. It's been filled up with all kinds of pagan idols and places of worship for pagan things in this building. And imagine that we have a a moment of revival. We don't know what to do, but we just know, you know, we probably ought to fix the place up, paint it and carpet it and, and make it look nice. This is God's house after all. And as we're doing, one of you is cleaning out a closet One of you is doing some remodeling, and we discover you find a book, and you start reading the book, and you go, you know, I think this is what our great-great-grandparents read. That's what happened with Josiah. He reads the book. He is under immediate conviction that he and the people have been living in sin, and he stands before the Lord, a broken man. Dear friends, I believe that this present generation is closer to the situation Josiah found himself in than ever before. Hear me carefully. The present generation is no longer skipping church. To skip church means that at one point you meant to go. To skip church means at some some point it was on your agenda to show up. The present generation never even considers attending church. My grandparents' generation, 80% of them came to church. My parents' generation, only about 50, and most of that was Christmas and, and Easter. That means my generation grew up mostly going only once or twice, three times a year. And then the children of my generation have grown up not with a Bible in their homes or with church in their lives at all. 
Friends, we're close to the days of Josiah. So I want us today to learn from this testimony how we are to respond to the word because this is what I believe. You're here today. You're joining us online today. And so I, you obviously have some interest in the word of God. And so I believe as we preach, as we gather together for worship, God is stirring your heart. And the question that God is stirring in your heart is, what do we do now? What if you found yourself in a position like Josiah where you've been so long from the Word of God, you don't even remember it. You couldn't find 2 Kings in your Bible if you needed. You didn't know if it was in the Old Testament or the New Testament. You don't know what in the world I mean when I talk about covenant or, or, or temple or altar or any other things. That is ob- oblivious to you because it's been so long. What do you do if that's where you are? Well, I think this passage has a word for us. Three things this morning. Number one, we must be willing Brave enough, bold enough to be confronted by the Word. If you will not be confronted with the Word, you cannot go any further. Number two, respond with obedience of heart first. And secondly, respond with obedience of action. Let's move through these. Number one, be confronted. I see this in verse one and two. Look at what it happens. So in verse one and two, the king sent and they gathered to him all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. Basically gathers everybody, all the inhabitants of the land, small and great. And he read in their hearing, this is verse 2, they read in their hearing all the words of the book of covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. Now I'm about to tell you something that is absolutely going to break your mind. It's so foundational. Do you know how you are confronted by the word of God? You first have to read it. I know that's simple. I know it's simple. But dear friends, our Bibles are more paperweights for us than they are instructions for our lives. Somebody say amen. You got to open it up and read it. And when you do, God will confront you with his truth in your life. You may be tempted to think that this is so obvious it doesn't need to be said. But the situation that Josiah found himself and his kingdom in was, 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 was one where um, that even the priest had no knowledge of God's Word. At some point, they had, for, they had foregone reading it. And then after just a generation, they'd forgotten it ever even existed. Dear friends, the Bible is God's testimony of himself to his people. You cannot know God outside of the word of God. You cannot know God and you cannot faithfully obey God outside of the word of God. Anytime I have the opportunity to lead somebody to Jesus and they, and they have an opportunity to declare before me, I'm confessing Jesus is my Lord. We talk about how if Jesus is your Lord, then by definition you want to obey Jesus. And how do you know what Jesus commanded you? You read his word. And if you will not read his word, he is not your Lord. When the law was found, it was almost an afterthought. But by God's grace, it was read to the king. In 2 Kings 22, verse 8, Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shephan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shephan who read it, read it himself. And two verses later, more of a Shephan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. 
And he read it in the presence of the king. I'm not real sure how that went down, but it almost sounds like it's almost an afterthought. Oh, by the way, we found this interesting text. And they happened to read it to the king. When Josiah read the law, he was confronted with the truth it declared. The truth that it declared was that God had promised his people that as long as they obeyed his commandments, he would keep them in the land. He would protect them. He would provide for them. They would be his people, and he would be their God. But it also declared that if they turned away from him, that he would spew them out of the land. And Josiah, he didn't need a scholar, he didn't need a priest, he didn't need a preacher to tell him what that meant. It meant that they were in deep trouble because of their sin. He was confronted with these two truths, that he and the people had sinned greatly and that God's judgment would surely befall them. Now, I think one of the most natural things we do when we're living in sin is avoid the truth because we do not want to be confronted by the truth and our sin. I see this happen over and over again. Somebody is beginning to, 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 to live an issue of life in, in, of sin in their life, and they start backing away from the church. Because I'm praying. I believe that any time you come here and the word of God is preached, if you're living in sin, you're a very uncomfortable person in this room. I had a deacon, not at this church, praise God, but I had a deacon at another church tell me, Pastor, you got to lighten up a little bit. So-and-so was here today, and you know what he does in his life, and that really was probably an uncomfortable message for him to hear. I don't remember what I said to the deacon, but I shook my head in my heart, and I thought, praise the Lord. I want the downtrodden to be encouraged, but I want the sinful to be confronted with the Word of God. The natural thing for us to do when we're living in sin is avoid the truth, so we stop going to church. We stop spending time with faithful Christian friends. We stop reading God's word. We pull away from those things that will confront us. You see, reading God's word confronts us with his holiness, with his law, with his truth, our sin and our rebellion. When Josiah read the law, he was immediately confronted over his sin and the nation's sin. So he tears his clothes in repentance. That's chapter 22, verse 11. And he sought out faithful prophets to give him counsel as what he should do before the Lord. The Bible will confront and for this to happen, you must read it. Now, there's a second part, and that is understand it. The Bible is more than a history book. It's more than a storybook for children. It's more than a collection of wise sayings. The Bible is God's word to us that we might know him, that we might worship him, that we might not sin against him, that we might come to salvation. And here's the beautiful truth. God wants you to know and understand his word. Too often we approach the Bible as something that cannot be understood. Well, you go, man, this is way too long for me to read. I don't read that big of a book. Or, or you, you might say, the language is too hard to understand. I don't know what the these and the thous and the therefores mean. And Sometimes we just go, well, I didn't go to seminary. I haven't been trained. I don't know all the special things. When Josiah sent messengers to the prophetess to inquire about what he had read, God gave her a word for him. And in response, Josiah gathered everyone so that he might read it, the, them, to, to them the book. And notice in verses 1 and 2 who he gathered. He gathered all the elders. That would be the leaders. All the leaders come. He gathered all the men. 
And then it says he gathered all the inhabitants. So if you live here, you come. The priest, the prophets, and all the people from the oldest to the youngest. The idea here is that everybody was to come. Josiah wanted to read the word that everybody would come so that they might understand the word of God. Josiah understood that the law of God was important to know and understand and thus wanted all the people to hear the words so that they might understand God's truth. Listen, if it was something that only professionals could understand, he might have said, priests, you show up and I'll teach you what it says. If it was something that only the elite could understand, he might have said, all right, elders, you come and, and, and everybody else stay home. But who did he call everybody from the oldest to the youngest? Because the God wants the oldest to the youngest to understand his word. I think there is an implicit truth here. That is that Josiah trusted that God would give understanding to all who gathered just as God had given him understanding. Dear friends, in God's word is life. And my plea is that you would give attention to read and understand the word of God. Let it confront you by reading it, even in your sin. And let God give you understanding of his truth. I have confidence that if you will give your attention and mind to the word of God, he will give you understanding of it. Somebody say amen. Be confronted. Now, he reads it to everybody. And then from, from that point on, verse 4 all the way to 21 is this long list of the reforms that Josiah did. We skipped some of those. They're all important. They all have historical backgrounds. We could spend hours on them. But I think there's two things here that, that, that are important for us to understand. And the first is that Josiah responded with obedience of heart. So look with me in verse 3. In verse 3 it says, And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before God. This is not with people. This is not with his elders, with his leaders, with his political folks. This is a covenant he's making before God. He made a covenant which was, uh, he made, and the king stood at the pillar, made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart, his soul, and to carry out the words of the covenant that were written in the book. Respond with obedience of heart first requires that you turn to the Lord. Josiah made a covenant to the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep God's commandment. He was making a public declaration that he was turning his heart and his life to the Lord and turning away from the sinful things that his father and his grandfather and his great-grandfather had, had done. And I think the key to understanding verse 3 is in that little phrase, all his heart. A heart response must come before response of action. Now, this is important because if you're in the room right now and God's churning in your heart, where we tend to go to is, all right, what do I need to do? And that's important. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. But before you get to what you do, the obedience of action, you first must get to an obedience of heart. Actions alone can be motivated by legalism, social pressure. You can feel guilty or ashamed, and that might move you in one direction or, or not. You can, you can, uh, uh, actions alone can be motivated by a desire to be honored or praised by, by man. Well, way to go. You've become a great scholar in the Word of God. You can even have a perceived worldly advantage. And so you, you pursue those things, those actions. 
But if actions are motivated by these external forces, they will only be maintained as long as the external pressure is applied. That's why we today are seeing a, a, an exodus from the church. Where are those people who 20 years ago filled these pews? They're still alive. That 20 years ago were faithful to the Word of God and to the church of God, but now are sitting at home eating their breakfast and watching TV this morning. What changed? The social pressure changed. It's no longer a social advantage to them to be connected to a church. They got their actions right 20 years ago, but they didn't have their heart right 20 years ago. That's why it's important that we must have obedience of heart first. True life change in what you do is the evidence with what has already happened in your heart. In other words, when you get your heart right, your actions will follow. I'm not as worried about your actions as I am about your heart. Get right before the Lord in your heart and everything else falls in place. When you're confronted by God's word, it first is a battle of the heart. Will you turn your heart to the Lord and will you turn your heart away from the things of the world? And when you, when, you, when you turn your heart with all of your heart before the Lord, you commit yourself to the Lord. It is, you see with Josiah, he makes a public covenant with the Lord, but before the people. This is certainly more than just an emotional response, though surely there were great emotions involved. Josiah made a clear commitment to God to follow him, to keep his commandments, his decrees, his statutes, and to do this with all of his heart, with all of his soul, with all of his mind. The idea here is with everything I've got. Now, I want you to just to catch the contrast that is in this moment. Josiah is standing in the, in the midst of the temple that was built for God to be where he would dwell with his people and the people would come and worship the holy God. This is the holiest place you can be. And in that, on that sacred ground, inside the building where Josiah stood at this moment, were statues, idols to Baal and to Asherah. In the house of God. In the courtyard were altars to pagan gods. His father had added multiple altars to the sun and the stars and the moon and all kinds of things to be worshipped right alongside Yahweh. Within the temple grounds, they had built houses to support and to pay for cultic temple prostitutes. At the entrance were horses and chariots that were purchased and devoted to the worship of the sun god. In every direction, at high places, there were altars built to worship pagan gods. Not far from the temple grounds, in a valley just miles from Jerusalem, was a place where God's people worshipped a pagan named Molech. And that worship involved taking their own children and burning them with fire with human sacrifice. That's where Josiah stands. In the midst of total rebellion, Joshua dedicates himself to the Lord from this day forward, no matter the cost. 
Now, the rest of the chapter is a record of what Josiah did, but these actions were motivated and sustained by the vow that he makes in verse 3. Friends, it's time. It is time for you to stand up and with all of your heart and with all of your mind, with all of your soul, dedicate yourself, commit yourself to the Lord. It doesn't matter what went before. You can't control what your parents did, your grandparents did. You can't even do anything about what you did yesterday or this morning. But in this moment, you have an opportunity. Will you get your heart right before God? Like what what Joshua said many years before, not too far from Jerusalem, where he said to the people, It's disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord. Choose for yourself today whom you will serve, whether the gods which are your fathers served, which are beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are now living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. It's a public declaration Josiah was making, getting his heart right before God. Respond with obedience of heart, and then respond with obedience of action. Now, there's two things that, There's a lot here, but there's two things that Josiah does. As You can read the account of all the things he does. But the first and maybe primary thing he does is he purifies. He purifies. Purification follows actions of uh, um, uh, decisions and commitments of the heart. If you want to give your whole heart, your whole mind, your whole soul to the Lord then it makes sense that the next step would be, all right, God, I want everything about me to reflect your holiness and nothing about me to be sullied by sin. Josiah immediately began to act on his heart commitment. Responding to sin must be dramatic. So what does he do? He removes the idols, the altars, and the related items from the temple. First thing he does, he says, all right, gentlemen, go in there and pull out anything that's not righteous, the idols, the the pagan things. Draw it out, drag it out of the temple, and he crushed it, and he burned it, and he scattered them. He removed and slaughtered the idolatrous priest. He removed from the temple and cut off support for, for, the, for the wicked cult prostitutes. He destroyed the high places where idols were worshipped and defiled them. He burned the houses and the horses and chariots used to worship the sun god. He killed the pagan priest of the high places. And in all of these things, he was not only purifying, sponging from the land this wickedness, but he was, but he was working so that it could not be rebuilt. Three principles of purifying your life of sinful things. Number one, it requires intentional and active opposition. In verse 20, it says, Then he returned to Jerusalem. From the moment of his covenant before the Lord until the land was purified of the wicked things, the king was actively working, intentionally working to identify what was wicked and to actively remove it. In other words, dear friends, if you're going to purify your life, it will not be done if you have a casual approach. Well, maybe tomorrow. There's probably a few things I ought not to do. That's not the sense we get. He was actively, intentionally purifying the land. Number two, you must totally remove and destroy them. Here's where it catches us. Josiah did not repurpose these things. 
He didn't say, all right, take the Asherah, which are generally like totem poles made out of wood. He didn't say, you know, you take those out and you can cut those up. We'll use that for lumber. He didn't say, go take some of those idols that surely have expensive jewels and, and metals on them. So once you melt those things down and we'll use that for something else. He didn't say, take the lumber from the houses of the, of the prostitutes and say, you know, we could use those houses for something else. No, if you read what he did, he tore them down, he crushed them, he burned them, and he scattered whatever was ever left. And the point he was making is that he was totally removing and destroying them. His desire was they never, ever, ever be used again. Now listen to me carefully. To keep something is a testimony that you plan to return to it again. Do you hear me? If there's something in your house right now that ought not to be, I mean, God's already on you that it ought not to be in your home. I don't need to even name it. God's already identified it in your heart. And you go home this afternoon, I'm going to get right with Jesus, and you move it all the way from your den to your storage room in the backyard. Dear friends, you've just postponed something. You've just delayed something because keeping it testifies that you return, you intend to return to it. Josiah didn't store. He didn't repurpose. He didn't move to somewhere else. He burned. He crushed. He scattered. He defiled places So they can never be used again. And that leads us to the third dynamic, and that is count as worthless the investments made in sinful things. Now hear hear me, friends, because this will catch us too. When you read all that Josiah did in verses 4 through 20, you have to recognize that he is destroying what had been built at great cost. The idols were expensive. The chariots and horses were expensive. The houses were expensive. These were all things that not just recently, but over generations had been invested in. Money had been spent. Time had been spent. Devotion had been spent. Listen, when you just think about the the wickedness of Moloch, people had sacrificed their own children to that wicked pagan god. They had given their very, very most precious thing to the fire. And now he is saying this is worthless. But that's what we must do. You must count as worthless the investments made into sinful things. All that is wicked before the Lord is worthless. Listen to me. Do not let what you have invested in worthless things keep you from giving your life to the Lord. I don't care if you've spent all of your money on something that in the eyes of the world has value but before God is wicked. It would be better for you to live the rest of your days in poverty than to hold on to that temporary thing. Count it as worthless. Many of us are so invested in what we've paid for something, invested in something, that to destroy it and put it away is too much for us. But if you're going to purify your life, you got to count it as worthless, as garbage as Paul says. Chase after the Lord. Purify, and secondly, this is the good part, start anew. When you get to verse 31, this is a a breath of hope. From 4 to 20, it's been pretty rough, tearing down and, and, and slaughtering priests and burning things and scattering things. Josiah, um, he, he, he defiled most of the places of worship and in, in, intending that they could never be used again. But in verse 30, 21, it says that Josiah commanded all the people to observe the Passover. 
It had surely been a long time since anyone had observed the Passover. It may have been. Nobody even remembered how to observe it. How could they if the law that demanded it had been forgotten? God commanded that his people celebrate the Passover to remind them, to remember them, how he delivered them from Egypt, how he rescued them from bondage, how they became his people and established the law with them that he would be their God and they would be his people. But it's so much more. It also points to the day Jesus would be the sacrificial lamb to take away the sin of all the world. It's rich with God's grace and points to the Messiah. But notice here, it's not enough just simply to stop doing what is sinful. We must also start doing what God has commanded us. To obey the word of God calls us to keep all the commandments of God, both those things that we must reject and those things that we must do. And so in verse 21, we see this idea of starting anew. To start anew is simply to give your life to what you know that God has commanded you. For Josiah, it meant we're going to have the Passover. Dear friends, listen to me. You cannot do anything about yesterday. If you've squandered your life in sinless, worthless pursuits, it may be sad, but you can't do anything about it. But you can start anew today. In verse 9, the Levitical priests that had worshipped at the high places were brought back to Jerusalem. And the Bible tells us something interesting about them. Because they had sinned, because they had offered pagan worship to an idol, they were no longer permitted to work in the temple. They had forfeited their their God-given Levitical privilege of serving in the temple. But it says they did eat of the unleavened bread, meaning they were able to receive again food that God had commanded that the Levitical priests were to receive from the sacrifices of the people. And in that we see that they were starting new. Oh, there were consequences, yes. They could not do anything about that. But they were starting new. In verse 10, Josiah defiles the place where the people had sacrificed their own children to Moloch so that no one could kill their son or daughter there again. There were moms and dads in the assembly who had sacrificed their own children to a pagan god. At this moment, they could do nothing about that. But they could start anew, celebrating the Passover and remembering God's grace. Both groups were included in the all of verse 21. The Levitical priest who had sinned the parents who had sacrificed their children. Today, dear friends, is an opportunity to start anew, to come and know and worship the true and living God. What I'm about to say, I want you to listen to me very carefully. The great tool of Satan to keep us from his word, from the word of God, is not government oppression. The great tool of Satan to keep us from the word of God is not persecution. The great tool of Satan to keep us from the word of God, the most effective tool he has in his arsenal, is distraction. It is interesting that 
all the things that had to be brought out of the temple. There was never a time that I know of in the history of Israel or, 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 or the southern kingdom where they removed the altar to God. They just added other things in. Those were distractions. All idols distract you from what is true. Dear friends, you and I have more access to the Word of God than at any other generation in the history of the world. And let that sink in. You and I, at this moment, have more access, free access to the Word of God than any other generation that has ever walked the face of this earth. It's been said that one of the most dangerous things that Martin Luther did was not nailing the 95 theses to the wall, the, the church door there in Wittenberg, but rather it was translating the Bible into the common vernacular, the regular speech of the Germans of the day. Because for the first time in, in their lives, they could hear, they could read the Word of God for themselves. At the very beginning of the Reformation, the principal Bible available to anyone was Latin. It was the Latin Vulgate. And the only ones who could read Latin were the, 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 uh, the priest and maybe the, the well-educated elite, but not the common folk. It was, the Bible was, at that time, not a book that the general public was familiar with. It was a book that, that most individuals and families could not own and probably never would read in their lifetime. There were such things as pulpit Bibles, big, massive Bibles that sat on the pulpit. Most of them were chained to the pulpit. You didn't take those home with you. The Bible at that time was rare. It was rare to find a Bible in the language of the people. The well-educated social elite could, could read Latin, but the average resident of England or France or Germany or Italy or Spain knew only snippets of the Bible that they had heard the priest say during Mass. Today is very different. Today the Bible is accessible in printed form in a wide variety of translations and cheap. Most of us, dear, the honest word is, most of us, if we were to go home and gather all the Bibles we own, we'd fill a library this morning. On your phone, if you've got a smartphone in your pocket, you can download a free app and, and get free access. They'll even read it to you to almost every available English translation there is. And yet, I believe that this generation is the most biblically illiterate since the Reformation. How could that happen? Have we been restricted by law from the reading? of the Word of God? No. Have we been threatened with violence if we read the Word of God? No. We've been lured away by trivialities. We've been lured away by distractions. Email, text messaging, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, WeChat, YouTube, WhatsApp, Tumblr, Reddit, Snapchat, Pinterest, web searches. These things consume hours of our day. If we just read the Word of God the same amount of time we spent on those things, it'd be a whole different ballgame today, wouldn't it? Even in church, now I am about to really mess with some of you. Even in church. When the Word of God is being preached, 
I know for two reasons, because I see you and some of you have confessed it to me. That while the word's being preached, some of you are watching videos, scrolling Facebook, Twitter, doing email, other things other than hearing the word preached. You're in the room. And instead of hearing the word proclaimed to you, you're consuming something that has no value in the moment and much less for eternity. We celebrate that our children are readers because they consume large, many-paged novels. We think that's great. And they can tell us all the intricate details of a fantasy world, but they cannot tell us anything about the Word of God. Men can talk hours about college football or the latest equipment they purchase for their hobbies, but their Bible, but their Bible remains unused from Monday to Sunday if they brought it to church at all. And the result of this is a tragic and dangerous reality that the word is being forgotten. And as it is, we move further and further away from God and welcome more and more wicked things into our lives. Listen, if you think I'm being overdramatic, you're not understanding me. I'm trying to be as dramatic as I can. Those things that we have welcomed into our lives as benign, not that bad, I think are on the same level of danger as the wicked things of Baal and Asher that were in the temple. If they distract you from the word of God, if they keep you from the righteousness of God, if they have gathered your attention away from God's truth, they are dangerous idols. And the question must be, what do we do? You start by reading the word. It's okay if you've started before. I have too. Start reading the Word. If you need to go buy you a translation you can actually understand, do that. But start reading the Word. If you need to listen to it read to you on one of the apps, that's fine. Start reading the Word. If you've started a thousand times before and have failed every time to read through the Bible, that's okay. Start reading the Word. Let God confront you with his truth. Participate in Bible study and worship when the word is preached so that you can hear the word. I'm telling you, my preaching will get better if you'll read the word. Not that I'm doing anything different, but God will use what you've studied during the week to blow up what I preach on Sunday morning. as you read God's word and as he confronts you with his truth, respond with obedience of heart. Get your heart right. And respond with obedience of action. Get your life right.